Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a nonprofit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. I'm going to interrupt your conversation just a little so that we can get things begun promptly and actually a few minutes early for Dr. For Dr. Rothberg. We're, we're uh, starting our International Perspective Series this year. I think this is the 13th year. Mel Cusen had an idea some years ago that it would be very beneficial for the community, Dallas, to uh, have some experts come in and talk with us on subjects that are very pertinent to our nation's uh, involvement internationally. Uh, He did this through the American Jewish Committee. The American Jewish Committee was founded in 1906. It's over a hundred years old now. And its purpose was multi-level. But one of its purposes was to safeguard the welfare and security of the Jewish community here and abroad. And that followed in 1906 followed very briefly a period of pogroms in Russia. So the American Jewish Committee was born partly in response to that, and then one of its main focuses became the strengthening of the basic principles of pluralism as the best defense against bigotry, bigotry against anyone not just the Jewish people. And so it has been a great supporter of progressive uh, civil living in this country and elsewhere in the world. It's with great pleasure that I introduce Professor Robert Rothberg. He's president of the World Peace Foundation, which is an organization that he helped to form and uh, he directs the program on intrastate conflict and conflict resolution at Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government. He has also been a professor of political science and history at MIT. Professor Rodberg's great interest has been with the evolution of governments and greater civility for the people of Africa. And he's going to speak with us today on the subject of China's involvement in Africa, trade, aid, and influence. Please welcome Professor Robert Rockford. Thank you, Dr. Noble. Thank you, Jim Falk. 
thank you all for coming um, here on this sunny Dallas day. I still have my Phoenix blinkers on, so it all looks sunny. Dr. Noble said that I was in on the, uh, the start of the World Peace Foundation. It's very interesting to correct that because the World Peace Foundation is going to be 100 years old in 2010. <laughs> and I wasn't quite there. But, and very few people in this room are old enough to remember using textbooks of Ginn and Company, <coughs> high school, college text textbooks. But Mr. Ginn from Maine started the World Peace Foundation after a very successful career as the United States' largest textbook publisher. Uh, he may have even had a branch in Dallas. And he, he decided in 1910 that uh, world peace could be created. And so he raced with Andrew Carnegie, who created the Carnegie Endowment in the same year and created the World Peace Foundation. The object was to bring about world peace. Uh, fortunately for Mr. Ginn, he had a heart attack and died on the eve of World War I. Um, because he, the residual, the residuary grantee of the money that Ginn left goes to an orphanage when world peace is created. There's no if, when world peace is created. And at the 100th anniversary of the World Peace Foundation, I will have to stand up and announce the leadership of the world's least successful organization, having failed to create world, world peace. Uh, enough about uh, the World Peace Foundation, uh, but I wanted to correct that. The, 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 uh, if you noticed in the newspapers yesterday, you will have seen that the Sudanese government uh, bombed southern Darfur once again from the air. China is, as Mia Farrow and others, Steve Spielberg and others have made it very clear, China is morally responsible for what goes on in Darfur. It's morally responsible for, not legally, morally responsible for what goes on in a number of African countries where uh, life could be better if their governments were not preying, preying upon them. I want to come forward to that point, but also begin with uh, the yang and the yin of China's involvement with Africa. Very simply, China offers the greatest good the world has ever known for Africa, and the greatest chance of evil for Africa that the world has known. There's both, both going, going forward. Now, China is not new to Africa. China had re engagements with Africa as early as the Tang Dynasty in the seventh uh, century of our era. And there were descriptions that one can find in Chinese Chinese accounts of the people of the southwestern sea, that is Kenya 
and Tanzania in the 11th and 12th century. And then in the 15th century, the middle 1400s, China sent five very large fleets to Africa to explore the southwestern seas, to bring back to China proof of the celestial quality of the Ming dynasty. China was searching for unicorns, which, was, which were proof of the celestial quality of the Ming dynasty, and they found them. And they brought the unicorns back to, to uh, what, is, what is now, uh, now uh, Beijing, and the unicorns survived the voyage on seagoing ships of the era, found their way to the, the emperor's palace, and lived for many years looking suspiciously like, like a giraffe in, in the Beijing Zoo. And there are scrolls from that time showing the celestial animal, the giraffe, and um, I happen to be wearing a tie with giraffe, uh, those of you who know Swahili, Twingamingi, on my tie, and that's the reason for China's first thrust into Africa, which was search, searching for the, uh, the, the, uh, the celestial animal which it found. The second great period of China's involvement in Africa is really in our time, is in the 1960s and 70s, China was very heavily involved in helping some of the socialist countries of Africa uh, strengthen the, the infra, their infrastructures. Uh, China built railways, uh, built some roads, had serious relations with uh, many of the countries of Africa, and uh, also wanted at that time to uh, compete against tai Taiwan for support from African countries, something which still continues. Now, now, over these first two periods, China and Africa enriched each other intellectually and sometimes uh, materially. Now we're into the third era of heavy engagement between Africa and China. This one is much more transformative than the, than the earlier iterations. Indeed, China's current thrust into sub-Saharan Africa promises to do more for economic growth and poverty alleviation in Africa than anything ever attempted by the West. Western colonialism didn't match what China is capable of doing for Africa now and Africa for China. What China is doing also uh, competes successfully with what the World Bank and other international lending agencies have done for Africa. The sum total of China's foreign aid is less than the continued aid from the United States and Europe, but China, as I'll explain in a moment, China has various ways of distributing its assistance that don't qualify as foreign aid. Uh, and there are all kinds of ways in which China's influence has been very influential in 2008 and will be in 2010 and 2011. I leave out this year because the international meltdown has affected China as seriously as the rest of the world, and 
the recovery in the world will assist Africa through China as well as the United States and other countries. China's very rapaciousness, its seemingly insatiable need for, for liquid forms of energy, for the raw materials that feed its ever-widening maw, responds to South Africa's, Southern Africa's relatively abundant supply of unprocessed metals, diamonds, gold, and so on. China also offers, this is not usually appreciated, a ready market, a market, and there's no other market other than China, for Africa's timber, for Africa's agricultural crops, crops for cotton and sugar that can't be sold to the rest of the world, and in some cases for light, light manufactured goods. And it's conceivable that um, the only way that Africa will ever industrialize successfully is by supplying China. That's a hope. Otherwise, Africa is destined to remain a non-industrialized uh, sector of the world which contributes to its continuing poverty. And th those of you, I'm sure many of you here know that Africa is not only the poorest continent on Earth, but is poorer than the next poorest continent by a factor of 40 or 40 or or or, or, or 60 percent, so it's significantly behind. And where China and India have reduced poverty rates in the world by reducing their own own numbers of people earning less than a dollar a day, in Africa that number is increasing rather than 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 falling off. The new symbiosis between Africa and China could be the making of Africa, and that would contribute more than anything else the world has ever done to the alleviation of poverty in Africa through growth and through trade, not through aid. And China is playing its significant role in this. But China, China remember, is no altruist. China is not doing any of this to help Africa. China is doing everything it does to support the growth of China, to support a growth which was racing along at 14% at, uh, a year until September, uh, where China is now growing at 6% or so. Uh, and until that growth picks up again to 10% at least, we're all in trouble, and Africa's in trouble too. Um, Africa also, uh, China also prides itself on not meddling and on merely desiring Africa's resources. It prides itself on not caring about the quality of the nation's government in Africa, not caring what its rulers look like and how, how they behave. It, it does not seek to change or improve the societies in which it is becoming a major, if not a dominant, influence. So China, think of China as extractive and exploitive. China thinks of itself as extractive and wouldn't use the word exploitive. Um, China also wants friends and, and seeks to remove any remaining African ties to Taiwan. There are four countries, last year there were five, there are four African countries that still 
adhere to Taiwan, and gradually that number will go to zero. China, China also believes in getting the work done properly. And so China does something which no colonial power ever did in the past. China brings its own labor with it, goes to China, and when asked to build a harbor, a road, a railway, it generally brings Chinese labor. And Africans, who desperately need employment, stand there with their arms crossed and say, what is going on? And so that's one of the Chinese problems, Chinese public relations problems. Chinese, the Chinese uh, uh, governments, Chinese agencies, Chinese firms in Africa feel that they can only get the job done with their own labor. And they also spend their time in, in uh, social cocoons. And although uh, many of us who have traveled to Africa go there and try to find out what Africa is like, China circles the, circles the ring, circles the mine that they own in Zambia, circles other places, and really focuses inward on making sure the job gets, gets done. Positive in some respects, but certainly not for, uh, for, uh, for a social interaction. Um, Resentment in Africa is also very large at the quality of Chinese goods and the fact that Chinese goods undercut African goods and undercut off, often the small traders who populate African markets and populate Africans even up country in the most remote villages. Let me ask you a very simple question. If you go into the most remote village that you can find in Cameroon, in Zambia, in Tanzania, what will you find? What are the, 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 probably the only three things you'll find in that village to, to purchase? You'll find Coca-Cola, you'll find a SIM card. Uh, so that you can slot into your telephone, a time card that you can do into your, into your mobile phone, probably one manufactured by Celtel. And thirdly, you'll find a Chinese entrepreneur. And they're, they're everywhere. And Africans find this astonishing, uh, just as they years ago found Coca-Cola's marketing ability astonishing. And they also find it very competitive, competitive in ways that don't excite them. So there's a tension always, because without the Chinese entrepreneur, they would sell less, yet with the Chinese entrepreneur driving out their own traders, the, the uh, local purchasing power might, might uh, diminish. So that's a tension which, con which continues not so much in the cities as in all the rural areas. In the cities, it's there as well. And they're, in the book, by the way, you'll see in a chapter by Stephanie Rupp uh, a graphic, a photograph of a poster in Zimbabwe uh, in the local Shoshona language urging people to be very wary of China and Chinese goods because they are dangerous and uh, really 
really uh, really undercut the competition. So that's in a indigenous poster done by by Africans themselves without any outs outside influence. Um, but the big issue I think that um, that we need to talk about is as much as China is important for the future prosperity of Africa, and I, I want to underscore that and underscore it again, China is also complicit in making it possible for the least savory of African regimes to continue in power. Here's what China has done in Angola. Angola is the largest supplier of oil from Africa, the second largest African oil supplier to the United States. What China has done in order to give itself control over sovereign oil, that is oil which couldn't, which don't, which doesn't find its way to the world, world markets, is it has, it has uh, promised Angola a whole series of uh, concessional lending, which is exchanged for oil rights. Secondly, it has provided ample funds to the rulers of Angola. It is building the Lebito Railway and the re rebuilding the Lebito Railway in the south, rebuilding a port in southern Angola, doing this all with Chinese labor, and keeping itself somewhat distant from Angola. Now, what is the problem here? The problem here is that there's no democracy in, in Angola and never has been. The um, ruling family, the Da Santos family, according to the World Bank, has siphoned off 3.54 billion years of oil, uh, dollars worth of oil revenue each year in the last decade. Uh, the country is still desperately poor. China's, China's view is we don't care about any of that. We just want the oil. We're happy to build some roads and ports and railways, which will help the Angolan people eventually. But we don't mind propping up an unpleasant regime because that's not our business, says, say the Chinese. That's their business, and we're not interfering. Likewise, in Khartoum, in the Sudan, the six-year-old war between uh, the Arab-supported uh, camel cowboys and the African agriculturalists, both of whom are Muslim, by the way, <coughs> that has been convulsing Darfur the size of France for the last six years, that war is perpetrated by the Sudanese government with direct support from China. China buys two-thirds of the oil of the Sudan. It also pumps three-quarters of the oil and has built the big pipeline, has built the only refinery in the country, and has very close ties with the junta of General Bashir that has ruled the Sudan since, since, uh, since 1989. When the Bush administration went to China and said, let's cut a deal. Let's, let's find a way for you to withdraw some of your strong backing for the Sudan. 
pre-Olympics and post-Olympics, and then we can begin to put pressure together on the Sudanese government to end the war in Darfur. China said it's nothing to do with us. We're simply buying the oil, we're simply supplying two-thirds of the guns that are used to shoot the people in Darfur. We're supplying the aircraft, but, but we have nothing, we're not, we're not we're really hands-off, we're not really doing anything, it's, it's only the Sudanese government. So I think President Obama's and Secretary Clinton's task will be very difficult because they have to cut a series of deals with China to end the Darfur war, to bring about freedom in Zimbabwe, where the Chinese have supported President Mugabe for the last five, six, seven years. Uh, Mugabe has traded agricultural land to China for Chinese farmers to grow tobacco in exchange for uniforms for the Zimbabwe army, in exchange for fuel, in exchange for um, uh, financial support. And that continues. Uh, China's taken the place of Libya. Libya used to do this uh, throughout some large parts of Africa. China's, China's taken, taken over that, that role. There's a chapter in the book that you'll read by Ambassador Shin, uh, former ambassador to Ethiopia, uh, who, which details uh, line by line of what Africa's supplying, uh, what China's supplying to Africa in terms of military equipment in 2008 and 2007 and in 2006, China's become the largest supplier on, on easy credit of military equipment to, to Africa. It's one of the big, big ex exports um, of China to Africa and it keeps the wars of Africa going. So one of the Obama administration's tasks is, is really to find a way to say to China, look, we're not competing with you for the merchandise trade of Africa. We're not trying to undercut your investment in Africa, which is, a, which is about 50 billion a year, uh, one of the largest there is. We're not trying to compete with your lending. We want you to go ahead and continue to build the roads and the ports of Africa, but we also want you to back off, back off in terms of support for the dictators of Africa. But let me widen this somewhat. In order to do that, the Obama administration is going to have to um, uh, come to an understanding with China about human rights, which Congresswoman Pelosi is 400% against. Uh, the Obama administration will also have to come to some understanding over Burma. Uh, China needs Burma for a warm water port on the Indian Ocean. Burma, I, I, I wrote a book, I pre prepared a book which came out in 2007 called Worst of the Worst, dealing with repressive and rogue states. North Korea, the most repressive, Turkmenistan, the second, Burma, the third, Zimbabwe, the fourth, Equatorial Guinea, an oil supplier, fifth, Syria, Uzbekistan, um, down to uh, Tunisia, um, which was the 12th or the 11th on this list. Uh, it's going to be very difficult for the Obama administration to 
to steer its way, for any administration, steer its way through this, uh, the iceberg-strewn seas of China's involvement in various repressive places. We want China on our side. China might like to be there too, but China doesn't want to give up its advantages in Africa, doesn't want to, to uh, uh, compromise with the position in the United Nations and elsewhere uh, that any ability to rein in repressive rulers might come back and bite it, bite China itself. Um, China doesn't want doesn't want to uh, leave any flanks open for human rights critiques, which might come through being critical of human rights regimes in Sudan, Angola, Congo, and so on. Now. China is everywhere in Africa. China is everywhere in the world, but China is everywhere in Africa. China has 38 diplomatic uh, embassies in sub-Saharan Africa. The United States has fewer. So China's has, China now has more penetration in Africa than the U.S. and Europe combined. Uh, China is starting export processing zones throughout Africa, following its very successful export processing zone in, in Mauritius. It's starting one in Kenya, it's starting one in Zambia. These export processing zones will enable China to, con to essentially have, have its own uh, sovereign bases in a series of African countries. Uh, president Mbeki, when he was president of South Africa, warned China to be very careful and not to uh, flood the South African market with cheap goods. So China uh, agreed that it would cut back and have a quota on Chinese goods coming into South Africa. But no place else in Africa has really had the clout to persuade the Chinese to back off slightly. And what Africa needs to do, and one of the um, final points in my contribution to the book China into Africa is to is a call for Africa to get its act together and to work in a concerted manner to deal with Africa to we deal with China collectively rather than country by country. As you um, are probably aware, Africa has south of the Sahara has 48 jurisdictions. No other continent has half as many. So Africa has a lot of individual jurisdictions even south of the Sahara. 53 in total in the African Union. And many are small. Um, only Nigeria, um, Nigeria, Ethiopia, and South Africa are large. The rest are small. So they're all weak in, compared to China. Uh, and what we have to move forward in terms, of, in terms of developing a more peaceful Africa and a more successful trading relationship between China and the rest of the world is to uh, develop a win-win situation for China to continue growing. I think everyone in this room realizes now, if you didn't realize it a year ago, it's important, very important to keep China growing. And one of the reasons it's important to keep China going is for the sake of Africa, the poorest continent, we can probably do more with China's help to alleviate suffering in Africa. Uh, between China and the Gates Foundation, we can move forward 
very very successfully and do far more than uh, the U.S. and Europe are prepared to do in terms of aid and far more than the World Bank has ever ever su succeeded in, in uh, doing. Finally, let me say that uh, this is China, repeat that this is China's third age of African engagement. We don't want China to retreat from its third age, and we don't want some years hence to have a fourth age. We want China to continue doing what it does well and continue uh, uh, rethinking what it does poorly in Africa. Thank you. Thank you, Professor. That was enlightening, I must say. Um, I don't know how many of y'all were aware of all these problems. I certainly wasn't. So this has been a good education. As is usual, we have lots of questions. Dr. Rutberg has agreed to answer them, or at least try to. Let me see some hands up. Why don't we start right there? Yes, in, he's going to bring. She's going to bring a microphone over. In an earlier period, uh, the U.S. was known to support a number of unsavory regimes in Africa. How would you compare that with the current Chinese policy? I don't think uh, the American public ever permitted. United States to back as many unsavory regimes. And the difference between, there's no accountability in China. There's no, uh, there's no public opinion in China capable of um, uh, being critical of, of what China's doing in the Sudan, say. If there is a public opinion, no one has heard it, and it would be easily repressed. Uh, if you follow China, as some of you here do, you'll know that uh, those few brave legal protesters are um, either imprisoned quickly, uh, at, uh, dealt with more harshly, uh, even if they come from remote villages, they're not allowed really to get to the city to protest. So uh, there was always criticism of what we were doing in Congo during the Cold War. One regime, the Mobutu regime, that we supported long past time. Uh, but the United States also, uh, particularly under Senator Kennedy, uh, President Kennedy, uh, backed liberation movements up and down the continent. So our yang and yin is much, much uh, more acceptable to most Americans than what China is doing now. When I looked at last year, President Hu Jintao made, spent more time in Africa than in any other continent outside China, obviously. Uh, isn't it time for us to, for President to appoint real high-level envoy, Bill Clinton-like for Africa? I'm thinking about $5 billion aid they promised to, Con China promised to Congo, and there is semiconductor material, which is pretty much only on Earth, found in Congo, and so on. We need 
from our interest point of view, Africa way more than we're actually doing in terms of selling our need there. Yes, uh, Hu Jintao uh, visited um, in his in his first capacity. Now in his second capacity, he's visited um, he's visited visited large parts of Africa five or six times since 2003. I don't think the U.S. should spend its time competing with Hu Jintao in terms of diplomatic visits, but it should spend a lot of time uh, uh, strengthening peacemaking efforts in Africa, doing what. Um, uh, the Assistant Secretary of State and in the Bush administration tried to do without much support from Washington. Uh, fortunately, President Obama has a has firm commitments on Africa. Secretary Clinton knows Africa better than she knows most parts of the world. And uh, uh, Susan Rice at the United Nations has already been ha was previously and now been very outspoken on uh, on African issues. So. We we might want to buy um, coltan from Congo and Rwanda to use for for um, for missile cones and so on. But I I don't th I th I think the power of the United States to compete to compete uh, from a mercantile point of view is 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 perfectly robust, and we need to be uh, more aware of what's going on and not worry too much about what the Chinese are doing or trying to travel as much as they do. Um, I'm sorry. I'm uh, Celeste. I'm from Rwanda. I work in those countries, uh, probably uh, the professor has mentioned. And I have uh, two questions. Uh, one is uh, related to China's influence in, uh, in Africa. As you said, China is like a uh, a fountain or a stream which produces sometimes clean water, another time salt water, which is really unnatural. Uh, when uh, this August I was in the Nuba Mountains, it was after the International Crisis Group said the Nuba Mountains are probably the next Darfur. Uh, what do you think about the U.S intervention rather than being like a firefighter in those situations where the crisis is real, the hand is writing on the wall, uh, what would suggest? Again, this is the place where China built a road from Khartoum to El Obeid, and the rest of the road from El Obeid to Gaduguri, the China piled only dirt on the road, which cannot be used by the Nubians. And so what do you think, or uh, what would you suggest the U.S. should do? Uh, rather than waiting until it is too late, just like it was too late in Rwanda, in my country, what the United States would do. My second question is, um, in October, I was in the office of the president of Burundi, the chief of protocol, asking him a question, uh, why China, you know, why all these Chinese? He said, and I quote his words, when we put an offer out there, either the Chinese or the or Gaddafi, they are the first to come. So what do we do? Do we push them out? So what would you suggest, especially to the American businessmen who are more concerned about safety and security and democracy and don't get involved in a lot of things going on? Thank you. The second question is, is reasonably easy, uh, I think. One welcomes the Chinese, asks them if, if you need a road in, in Burundi, and the Chinese prepared to build it. 
just make sure the specs are reasonable and the Chinese will get the job done according to what uh, Burundi wants rather than what China wants. And I don't think the U.S. should worry about that at all. If the Chinese want to spend their aid in that way, fabulous. Uh, the U.S. is not, uh, not given Iraq and, and Afghanistan able to compete with China head-to-head -head in Africa, nor would, we, nor would I want, want the U.S. to on these, these kinds of projects. There are bigger issues. Um, I was in Rwanda on Tuesday last week, and uh, as, my plane, my, um, as my plane landed, I realized that there was a Chinese delegation headed by, I think, uh, uh, leading the foreign minister arriving also. And um, I was alone. The foreign minister came with an entourage of 20 or 30. So I knew I was being outcompeted, but I wasn't there to buy or sell. I was there to assist the government of uh, Rwanda on a uh, on a governance issue that it wanted to to uh, to investigate. And I think that's that's a perfect perfectly reasonable metaphor. Uh, let the Chinese continue to do everything they're doing. The U.S. needs to be far more surgical in its in its involvement in Africa, given the fact that it doesn't have uh, resources until Iraq and Afghanistan are won or wound, wound down. Uh, you may disagree, but um, I believe that the development, continued development of Nigeria holds the key to Africa as a continent continuing to develop and move forward. Could you speak briefly about China's influence in Nigeria? Yes, I mean, Nigeria is one of the engines of Africa. It has at least 150 million people, and it has 150 million people with different opinions. Uh, uh, Nigeria does, does, is an engine of growth, and China is there. Um, China is attempting to, uh, it, it has purchased an oil concession recently, and is attempting to take uh, to to exploit some of Nigeria's abundant oil, um, but it also has come late to Nigeria and therefore doesn't hasn't really competed politically. It hasn't tried to add its uh, blandishments to the corruption that is present in Nigeria at all times. And uh, at the moment, I would say that Nigeria is one of the places that needs China the least in Africa and will also benefit the least from Chinese involvement. It's fairly neutral. Uh, China, uh, Nigeria's biggest problem now is not China or the U.S., but is internal governance. It has a weak president. It has uh, 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 corruption that probably exceeds any place on earth, and that impedes its growth and in, in, and continues poverty. It's also um, the one of the great places in Africa for Dutch Dutch disease. Um, it once was a food exporter. It now imports all its food. It has uh, abundant supplies of oil and imports refined petroleum, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Let me inter interject a question along that line, though. <clears throat> You've, uh, you speak of the governance. You've developed this Africa Index. Would you comment 
to the folks? Well, the Index of African Governance comes out annually from Harvard. Um, I uh, created it, but it's not just an index for Africa. We could do this for any part of the world, any jurisdiction, even Park City. And we, uh, uh, we measure governance, uh, security, rule of law, participation in human rights, sustainable economic opportunity and human development, five broad categories. We measure, measure within those categories 57 different ways. And uh, uh, we uh, produce a ranking every year. The purpose of the index, however, is not a ranking but a diagnostic tool, so governments, that's why the government of, of Rwanda asked me to come last week to explain to them how it could be used as a di diagnostic tool. Uh, and as I say, it can be used in any governmental jurisdiction, any place in the world, even in Texas. And uh, the, the, uh, the rankings, though, for those of you who might care about that, uh, Mauritius, Seychelles, Cape Verde, Botswana, South Africa are the top five followed by Namibia, Ghana, uh, Gabon, uh, Saint-Omé and Principe, and 10th uh, uh, is Senegal, 11th is, is uh, Malawi. Rwanda is uh, 16th after Tanzania, which is 15th. Kenya is about 18th, Zambia is 21st, and so on. At the bottom are the usual suspects, Nigeria, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is not democratic and not a republic. Um, uh, Chad, um, Central African Republic, uh, and of course at the bottom is uh, Somalia, which has no government, so really can't can't qualify. Can't qualify. Well, we get this fellow in the pink shirt. Oh, she, oh. I'm yes, sorry. I actually have a couple of questions, but uh, I want to hear a little bit more about what you uh, described as the special export zones, uh, export processing zones, are those, I remember China obviously had a lot of those as they were beginning their development. It, is it the same rationale? They use African uh, products uh, and raw materials and then where can they sell? Can they sell all over the world? Can they sell within Africa? And so on. So a little bit more about that. And then secondly, um, what you, you know, what you described some very difficult situations with regard to what they're doing with oil companies and uh, the earnings from the oil when they're uh, involved in that industry. Is it just the things you're talking about, or might they produce it at a lower cost than other multinational companies? Have you been able to get into that uh, to understand better uh, why they might get some contracts that other multinational oil companies don't receive? So well, the second question, China is is as the gentleman asked earlier, China, China is really uh, almost the only uh, bidder or tenderer in some areas. Uh, nobody wanted the Chambishi mine in Zambia. Z uh, China wanted the copper. Um, China essentially told the Republic of Zambia three years ago, we'll, we'll essentially run the mine for you, build it back up. And instead of saying, uh, we'll give it back to you in 10 years, China is, has an effect taken over the mine, and, and um, instead of supplying um, uh, jobs for Africans, it's, it's doing that on the margin, but it's basically supplying jobs for Chinese, um, not all of whom go home after their con con contracts are up, which is another subsidiary and fairly minor problem. So, so China 
There was no way in which Angola was going to spend its own money to refurbish the port of Lobito, even though it needed to, because the port of Lobito largely supplies the Zambian copper belt and the Congolese copper belt. Uh, China said, no, we'll do that because we, we want to export Congolese copper and Zambian copper through this railway to the west coast of Africa, uh, what the Portuguese did years ago. And therefore, it's in our interest to build this up. And, and Angola said, fine, you pay us so much, we'll arrange a contract and we'll trade it for oil, uh, which is what's been going on. Uh, export processing zones. Um, the Chinese have modeled uh, their effort on what happens in Shenzhen and, and what's happened in Hainan Island, and also uh, what, hap what the Mauritians pioneered. The Mauritian economic miracle, which has now been going on for 40 years, is based entirely on export, well, uh, based originally on, 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 on export processing zones. The Chinese have simply expanded the model so that they bring capital in, produce uh, free of tariff um, various kinds of goods and then export them to the world. So it's, it, it's purely a mercantile model. Um, I was telling, telling uh, Dr. Noble yesterday or perhaps somebody else that uh, uh, China has the advantage of, of state-controlled capitalism. So they can be capitalist at all times. They can also direct capital. They can, have, they can use a TARP continually and to greater effect than uh, we seem to be doing. Uh, how would you assess the relative effectiveness of the Chinese building infrastructure with often the NGO's aid directed toward individuals? To, to, to say that again, because I, I don't quite follow it. Well, uh, I heard what you said, but I don't yeah, follow it. Yeah. Yeah. Often the NGO's aid is uh, directed toward individuals and uh, some criticism that it creates a state of permanent dependency among the Africans, whereas the Chinese uh, model building infrastructure seems in the long term will benefit Africans. But how would you assess uh, the relative effectiveness and benefit to the Chinese from those two different types of activities? I, I think what you mean by NGOs are the international lending agencies. Uh, because the NGOs generally don't build infrastructure like CARE International Mercy Corps and so on. They don't, they're not in the infrastructure business usually. Uh, the, um, the end result of what the World Bank or the African Development Bank um, or U USAID might do are essentially no different from what China is doing. In uh, Malawi last week I was driving down a road that the European Union uh, paid for that the Malawians built um, and China has the contract for the next extension of this road network. Uh, they're taking over from, from an Indian contractor who went broke and didn't build the road according to, to Malawian standards. A long complicated story. Um, but but I, there's no difference in the result providing uh, uh, Inspections are done properly, and the and the the specs are appropriate according to local standards, and then it's a question of the Chinese uh, not building in a shoddy manner as they did with Tazara Railway years ago, uh, and I think African governments are up to that uh, for the most part, and Chinese standards are better now too. Got one more question. In the interest of time. 
We're going to take one more question and then we'll go to the matter of Dr. Rothberg's book over here. China currently holds about $2 trillion of U.S. notes. What leverage do you believe the Obama administration will have on China in the geopolitical system in Africa? Oh, boy. <laughs> that's a whole lecture. That's a, that's a fairly profound. Um, uh, well, there are always two sides to this. Yes, uh, China holding our notes gives China enormous leverage. Um, but anything the U.S. does will affect the holders of those notes. So there's a two-way street going. And um, China's not about to be a revolutionary in the international financial arena. If anything, um, China wants to be as conservative as any other place, probably more than even, even in the U.S. So uh, China is looking for stability in the international financing arena as we are. So I think China and the U.S. are partners rather than, than competitors in this area. I want to thank everyone who's come, and I especially want to thank Professor Rotberg for speaking with us. Uh, for those who are interested, uh, his book is being sold just outside the curtains. And for a little bit, he can sit there and sign it if you wish. Thank you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.